Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, as the holiday season fast approaches, Christmas decorations are going up right across the country. It's been a year of inflation and major weather events in the country from wildfires to floods. So will that make Christmas trees more expensive this year? We find out. It's time for your annual reminder that despite repeated warnings, most of us continue to use very weak passwords, ones that hackers can crack in a matter of seconds. We get a rundown on the most common bad ones, including a new one that makes its debut in the top five, and some tips on how we can all try to do better this year. Brian Stelter will be a familiar name for CNN watchers. He also, of course, works for Vanity Fair now and others. He has a new book out that once again looks at Fox News and its impact on the U.S. It's called Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the battle for American democracy. And he joins me to tell me all about it. But first, we talk about that brief truce between Israel and Hamas that kicks off on Friday morning local time. That we'll see the release of some of the 50 hostages held in Gaza for the past seven weeks. We'll hear from Canada's former ambassador to Israel about what he expects to happen. How long could this truce last? And an American diplomat who was held hostage in Iran for 444 days between 1979 and 1981 as part of the Iran hostage crisis about what it's like to be held captive and what happens when you're released. Let's head to the Middle East, where a brief truce between Israel and Hamas will begin in about two hours' time from now, if all goes according to plan. And just a few hours after that, it's expected that the release of civilian hostages will begin, starting with 13 women and children held by Hamas. That will happen around 4 p.m. local time in Jerusalem. Here's ABC's Matt Gutman. First, the hostages will be ferried by the Red Cross from Gaza into Israel. At that point, they'll be met by a specifically trained Israeli military unit that will verify their identification. At that point, for the first time in 49 days, they will be able to call their loved ones. Then they'll be checked medically. They'll also be debriefed by Israeli intelligence officers. And after about two hours or so, they'll be transferred to hospitals in Israel, where they'll finally be able to actually hold their loved ones for the first time again. That is ABC's Matt Gutman tonight. Uh, The brief truce will also allow for more humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. There will be the release of some Palestinian prisoners as well, about 150. That's uh, to be, when that's going to happen is still unclear at this point. It will be the first break in what has been a seven-week war uh, between Hamas since that attack on southern Israel on October the 7th. It has raised hope of eventually winding down the conflict. Yet hours before the beginning of the ceasefire, Israeli airstrikes continued to bombard Gaza. And in a meeting with UK Foreign Secretary David Cameron, the new one, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed that the work of finishing off Hamas is not done. Hamas has already promised that they will do this again and again and again. They're a genocidal terrorist cult. Uh, There's no hope for peace uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, between Israel in the Arab states if we don't eradicate this uh, murderous uh, movement that uh, threatens the future of all of us. Benjamin Netanyahu there earlier today, the Israeli Prime Minister. Israel has said the pause could continue by one day for every 10 hostages Hamas releases. Joining me now is John Allen. He's former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and he's a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. John, thank you. Welcome back. Uh, Happy birthday, Ben. Thank you, John. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, looking overseas, um, this this feels like it could be a breakthrough, and yet 
maybe not. Uh, what's your sense of what's happening? Well, it's a breakthrough in the sense that we've got um, uh, at least uh, 50 Israeli hostages released and 150 uh, prisoners uh, that are Palestinian. It's a breakthrough that humanitarian assistance, uh, at least 200 trucks worth, uh, is going to be delivered. Um, And it's a breakthrough in the sense that there is now a pause and uh, the people um, uh, in Gaza will be free of bombing uh, for at least um, uh, the time uh, that it takes uh, to... uh, these four days that it takes to get the first 50 hostages out. The diplomacy that's gone on behind the scenes, I gather, is is pretty phenomenal. It is. Uh, it's taken a huge amount of work uh, by the Americans, um, by the Qataris, who are the go-betweens uh, between the Americans uh, and Hamas, and undoubtedly uh, by the Israelis. Uh, it's been very complicated. Uh, there's some a suggestion that a deal has really been in the works for two weeks, but um, the final details, how it was going, the, how the exchange was exactly going to take place, who was going to be on the list, and also the question of Hamas gathering all of these uh, hostages because they weren't the only organization holding hostages. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad had some other groups had some, uh, apparently individual families actually held a couple of hostages. So it's definitely been a complicated process. But thankfully, in a couple of hours, as you said, it will begin. Right. Uh, and there has been a lot of pressure on the Israeli government here um, over the last, I mean, including on Saturday, I think there was a long march of the families of the, of the hostages and their supporters from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The Israeli government's been under a lot of pressure here to try to make sure the hostages get home safe. And that's a very, given the circumstances of what's happening in Gaza right now, that would seem like a very difficult thing to do and puts them in a very difficult situation as well. Uh, puts Hamas in a difficult situation or the or Israelis? Puts, puts, it, puts, the, it puts the Israelis in a difficult situation of having to try to deal with Hamas at the same time as vowing to eliminate them. Yes, well, um, you're absolutely right about the pressure, and it is the, the, the domestic pressure within Israel that has changed the equation here. Um, there's no 10,000 people marched, as you indicated, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They ended up at... Uh, at the Jerusalem home of Bibi Netanyahu, uh, pressure on the military to change the focus from uh, going after Hamas military leaders to getting the hostages out. And um, yes, it's difficult, um, but uh, it's important. Uh, You have to remember 1,200 people died, uh, many, many injured, and, and uh, for many Israelis, the focus should have been on these hostages from the beginning. Um, and now that it's happened, I think um, the, the country is, uh, is happy. The question, of course, will be uh, how many will be released? As you mentioned, uh, 50 initially and then uh, possibly 10 more per day um, but um, that still leaves quite a large number of hostages. Will Hamas drag this out? Um, will the ceasefire uh, or the pause 
continue? Will there be some accidental firing from some group that throws it out of kilter? There's a lot of questions still to be answered. And of course, there is the question, as you hint, what's, what's Israel going to do afterwards? Is it, is it going to stop because the pause has been for, for quite a while? Or is it uh, afterwards going to go uh, perhaps into southern Gaza in a more targeted fashion and try and uh, continue to eliminate uh, political and military leaders? There is, of course, precedence for this. Uh, Hamas and the Israeli government have negotiated in the past. I imagine you were there uh, while the negotiations for Gilad Shalit, the uh, Israeli soldier, were going on. That wound up, I think, with a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners being released. But after years, this has gone very quickly by those standards. Absolutely. It's gone very quickly. Uh, in this case, it's not a, a soldier. It's children, babies. Um, up until 18 years old, women, elderly, uh, Israelis. So the pressure uh, was was huge. Uh, uh, in the case of Gilad Shalit, uh, the pressure largely came uh, from his family. Uh, and uh, as you indicated, uh, a thousand for one. In this case, uh, actually, Israel did pretty well. It's uh, 50 for 150, three to one. Right. Although there are still, I mean, there are another 190 hostages, I guess. Now, some of those are foreign nationals. I gather maybe I'm seeing story, rumor or reports of the Thai government working out something separate uh, for the release of 23 Thai nationals that were taken hostage. They were working in southern Israel at the time. But there are still IDF members, uh, Israeli Defense Force members that have been taken hostage, I understand. And that could be a lot trickier. That could be trickier, and they will be the last uh, to be released, um, if at all. Um, but this is, I think this is what Hamas is hoping for, that uh, they can drag this uh, humanitarian pause out so long um, that uh, there will be pressure from the international community and perhaps pressure from within Israel to to keep dragging it out, to keep uh, having the hostages uh, be released drip by drip. Uh, and meanwhile, Hamas reorganizing, uh, refinancing, uh, and, um, you know, preparing for another day. Right. John, I think there is a, when one looks at what's happened over the last seven weeks, what is the situation now in terms of Israel's military objectives in Gaza? Because it's it's hard to see. I don't think they've accomplished what they set out to do, but they've certainly done a lot over the last seven weeks. Well, they have. Um, uh, they, they have entered northern Gaza and destroyed about three-quarters of it. They have encircled Gaza City, where they considered the vast majority of political leaders um, and uh, military leaders uh, to be initially. Um, they have done a fair bit of damage. I, I, I can't give you the total. I've seen 1,200 um, uh, Hamas uh, militants killed. Um, I think that number may have increased uh, since then. Um, they have full control now of the three neighborhoods that uh, they wanted to control. Um, there is some suggestion that um, uh, a number of the militants and many of the hostages have now moved south. And that, um, as you imply, uh, poses um, some, some problems uh, because, of course, they've convinced 1.3 million 
uh, Gazans to move south uh, for protection. And now in the next stage, um, once the humanitarian pause is over, if it ends, uh, then there's some sense that Israel will want a, a more targeted, more strategic operation uh, to try and go after um, the militants that have moved south. There has um, been... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's, I, that's it. I was going to say, there's been a fair amount of international pressure, not necessarily from, from everyone publicly, but I gather behind the scenes there's been a fair amount of international pressure to ease up a bit in Gaza, uh, or at least look at extending these pauses. Uh, what's your sense of the international pressure, and what's your sense of whether or not this, this fighting will continue in the way we've seen it uh, evolve over the last seven weeks? I don't think it will continue in the way we've seen it. I don't think there will be uh, the kind of uh, aerial bombardment um, that we saw in the north. Um, that that simply can't happen in the south. Um, it would uh, cause such an outrage um, that that international pressure that you're talking about would only increase. And I think Israel's probably gotten that message. Um, uh, the, the most important international pressure, of course, is from the Americans, um, not the Europeans and not the Canadians. Uh, it's the Americans they listen to. They, they don't uh, necessarily follow everything uh, that Joe Biden uh, and Secretary Blinken uh, think should be done, but they definitely listen. And, um, and I think uh, they've gotten the message already that world leaders are coming under significant pressure from their own publics uh, and it's increasingly difficult for them not to be calling for a ceasefire. We've seen it in Canada and uh, we see it in, in a number of other countries. So Israel is going to have to be more careful, cause less civilian deaths and injuries uh, and, uh, and be more targeted uh, in their efforts uh, to continue to try and wipe out uh, the Hamas leadership. Well, John, as always, thank you so much for your insight on this. We'll be watching to see how this evolves over the next four days and then perhaps even longer. Thanks very much. Uh, speak to you again soon. As we were mentioning in the last half hour, in about two and a half hours now, that brief truce between Israel and Hamas will take effect. And it will mean the release of about 50 of the estimated 240 hostages that Hamas has held since its attack on southern Israel on October 7th. Mainly women and children. The first 13 will be released a little bit later today. Uh, it's been an agonizing wait for the families, needless to say. Uh, and they've been putting pressure on the Israeli government to prioritize the safe return of their loved ones. Last Saturday, family members and thousands of their supporters completed a five-day walk from Tel Aviv to the home of Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem. Among them was Mirab Lashem Gonin, whose 23-year-old daughter Remy is a belie believed to be among those being held. She was at that music festival and taken on October the 7th. We spoke to her on the show in October, and here's how she explained what she's going through. They told her, I love you. We all love you. You're very loved by us. And when you will get better, we will go to the coffee shop and we will sit and you will talk to me for two hours, say whatever you like to tell me and share with me. 
Right, Mirev Lashem Gon and her daughter uh, Remy being held hostage, as believed by Hamas uh, in Gaza. If she, she, we don't know who is on the list of those fifty. Uh, it's not clear, but someone understands. And of course, the weight—you can just tell the idea that somehow they are somewhere being held, and that you can get them back. Maybe, perhaps, one day they will be safe and sound. Uh, it's such a difficult situation to find yourself in. Someone understands both what it means to be held captive and the toll it takes on the family waiting agonizingly for word of your health and safety is Barry Rosen. He was held for 444 days after being taken hostage in Iran. Rosen was one of 66 Americans seized inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran on November 4th, 1979. It's a news event that I think a lot of us remember very well if we were old enough at the time to be aware of it. Ultimately, he and 51 others would be held uh, for more than 14 months. Uh, They were finally released and flown home in January of 1981. Here's how reporter Ray Sinclair described the hostages from Tehran to ABC News on that very day. But I think a lot of people at the other end are going to be quite shocked by what they see of the, uh, the Americans who will get off that plane. Just looking at them, they appear to have momentarily at least lost complete touch with reality. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure they, they cannot conceive that they are free now. Ray Sinclair from Tehran back in January of 1981. So as we await the release of some 50 hostages held by Hamas for 48 days now, I wanted to better better understand what it's like to be held captive, what it's like to be released, and what happens after you are. Barry Rosen, again, is a former American diplomat who was held hostage during the Iran hostage crisis for 444 days. He's also a founding member of a group called Hostage Aid Hostage Aid Worldwide, an organization of survivors who work to better understand the issue of hostage taking. And he joins me now from New York. Uh, Barry, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know, I think I think all of us, because of movies and news, we can all sort of relate to the word hostage a little bit, but it is a disconnected term for someone who's never been there. Uh, not for you, though. This must have been a tough uh, month and a half. It's been horrendous. I mean, uh, the when I heard what was happening on that first day, I was absolutely astounded as everybody else is, but part of my DNA is connected to uh, those 444 days of captivity. And I felt such pain when I heard that so many individuals were going through perhaps something even worse than mine, but mine was bad enough. And uh, I I honestly believe that this is um, one of the most catastrophic situations uh, that that is happening in the international world order. And it's uh, in many ways to the disadvantage uh, to many of the democracies in the world that uh, this this chaotic situation is happening in, in Israel yeah. and, in, and in Gaza. It's funny, you know, we, I've spoken with families who, uh, families of hostages, or at least suspected hostages. And it's a strange conversation because there is a tendency amongst those who've never been in your shoes to think, well, okay, that's better than the alternative, right? That's better than than, than having been found dead. Um, and yet, for the families, it's a really tough one. It's a really tough one. And I, I just have, I, it's been um, it's been a difficult one to navigate from the outside because people are sort of throw that word around like lucky to be only a hostage. And yet, from your point of view, uh, just reading your story, 
I gather even those moments when you first become a hostage are absolutely terrifying and just mind shattering. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the first hours of captivity were absolutely beyond anything that I ever experienced in my life and hope to never have one again. It was so um, insidious. And one thing that we've learned over the years is that when people don't see other people as human beings, then it's very, very dangerous. Um, the uh, terrorists who took us hostage at the U.S. Embassy in 1979 didn't even think we were human beings. They threw us around, tied us up, blindfolded us, kept in isolation for days, and um, made our lives absolutely a living nightmare. I I really feel for those 240 people who are being held. And I don't know if Hamas has the same proclivities as those who were held us in Iran, but I feel that it's, it's consonant that yes, they have tremendous disdain, and especially for the Israeli troops who are being held there. How did you get through it? I mean, at what point? At what point do, do you? Does your mind uh, kick in for the for for the fight? I guess would be the word I was looking for. Well, you know, it, um, quote unquote, being a hostage is. Uh, was a novel thing for me, as it is for many, many people. Right. And I would say that the stages of captivity were ones in which, you know, there was this period of defiance in the beginning, fighting back in ways that I thought I could by using my language facility, my Farsi, my knowing Persian, and if they screamed or commanded at me, I would do it back to them. I'd get it. I mean, I'd get it physically. I'd get it beaten up. But I felt really good about that time. But then it wore on and it wore me out. And I could say that um, without any hesitation, I felt that death would be more more favorable than going on through this misery. As I said to some of those people who held us, we're going to grow old together and we'll continue to hate each other. And it went on. For me, it was interminable. Day in and day out. No idea of what's going on outside, absolutely few stimuli. But, you know, there were occasions, I would say, you know, there were um, really lovely occasions, like one occasion, I'm I'm in a, uh, a bricked up cell. I don't know where in, in Iran I was taken to, 
and there was a vent on on the uh, one of the walls, the fan. And somehow, some law of physics, there was a bird that flew, landed on the gradient outside the uh, the fan, and he appeared upside down on my ceiling in the ceiling in my room. And he was doing it for days. And the pleasure of just seeing that beautiful bird gave me such solace at that time. Because, you know, you when you're alone and isolated and feeling hopeless, something like that can open the door, you know. Maybe there is hope. And that's what I think was most important, to try to continue to hope that this will be over one day and I'll see my wife and my two little children. And I know my suffering mother at that time, I knew that she was going through hell. But... uh, I hadn't but, but, yeah. I hadn't thought of that aspect of, of being not only worrying about your own existence and, and losing track of time and your own helplessness, but also worried about those worrying about you. Yes. I mean, just think about what agony the families of these hostages are going through. They're going through their own experience as being a hostage. They're a hostage to this whole catastrophe themselves the pain that they are feeling the loss that they're feeling that's what i was realizing on and on god why was barbara going to take it and my mother how is my mother the children were young my oldest was old enough to understand but the baby didn't but i just my mother I was so concerned about her and and I could just picture the desolate days that she had to go through. Barry, I imagine one of the big issues here is the aftermath, because I, I suspect in this case, as in other cases, as in yours, there will be a lot of attention paid to the release itself, to the moment of mm-hmm. release, to the to the reunions. Yes. But, but what a journey afterwards just trying to find yourself again i mean in your case 444 days not as long obviously for those we may hope to see soon uh but still it must be an incredible incredibly difficult readaptation you know it um it's very important for uh, the general public and especially the families to understand yes this is the moment of euphoria for for some and I, I, I readily remember getting on the airplane after I was being spat at by those who held me. And the joy that we all felt, all 52 of us, of just leaving Iran and getting out and getting to Wiesbaden where we were taken care of by U.S. military and 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 uh, the State Department. Unfortunately, 
I think that uh, at that time, that's 1981, there was not enough understanding about uh, the longevity of the pain of hostage taking, the trauma that it does inflict on us. There are some people, yes, who say, um, yeah, I'm resilient. I can get along. I can do it. But many not. And they may seem to be uh, acting as any other person. But these moments, the moments of PTSD come on and uh, can be very, very destructive. So uh, I I did read a, a, a very good article by um, a doctor in northern Israel, Natanya, who actually um, is working with about 20 to 30 children who were in the kibbutzim in the south near Gaza. Um, and he is already starting um, therapy through play uh, for them. But for the adults, I think, um, and, and it depends upon the ages too, there, it, it won't be uh, um, just joy and happiness. Uh, it, there, will, there, there are moments, I hope not, but there, for me, there are, there were moments of great despair, even when I was at home, uh, working, taking care of the family, uh, there are there are days and weeks and sometimes months where you're just transfixed and uh, hard to move uh, out of uh, the pain that that you've gone through. So when we see what I imagine will be images of joyful reunions and releases, what would you like us all to keep in mind? I'd like uh, every observer to understand that these people are still in pain and that the most important thing is to understand what they've gone through and just not close the book on this experience. Um, it's important for people to say, I want to feel hopeful for them that they will get out and resume their lives. And what some authors call post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic syndrome, but the idea of growing out of this and actually making this a stepping stone for a better life. But it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of people. It takes a community to help an individual. Barry Rosen, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. We continue our series on chronic pain and the search for relief tonight. It's obviously, as we've been saying all week, a massive issue in this country. 20% of Canadians suffer from some form of chronic pain. It's something that costs the economy billions. 
uh, tens of billions. Uh, we began with a first-person account on Monday from Toronto's Lara Pingway about how acute back pain in August of 2018 became chronic pain, and then how she documented, she worked for the Globe and Mail, how she documented her long and often frustrating search for relief. As she puts it, it soon became clear that she was operating in a system that wasn't designed for patients like her, people who have pain that doesn't go away. We spoke with Dr. Hans Clark on Tuesday. He's Director of Pain Services and the Medical Director of the Pain Research Unit at Toronto General Hospital. To better understand how the medical community approaches chronic pain, it's actually something as a speciality or a specialty that actually hasn't been around for very long, as a specialty at least. And last night, we spoke with Dr. Samir Sinha, who's Director of Geriatrics uh, at the University Health Network in Toronto, about why older Canadians are often the invisible victims of opioid overprescription and why new approaches need to be prioritized alongside medication, but can be hard to come by. Have a listen. We're not making use of things like physiotherapy, massage, and other things, heat and cold, so that we can use opioids when they're absolutely necessary, but not necessarily starting there. And that's that's gives you some of the sense of how without that additional knowledge and that approach, we can easily run people into danger. Dr. Samir Sinha speaking to us last night. You can obviously hear all the interviews we've done in this segment or in this series on the A Little More Conversation podcast. You can find that wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at a littlemoreconversation.com. They're all there. All the shows are there, as well as the interviews we've done for this series on chronic pain and the search for relief. Well, as Dr. Sinha pointed out, there are alternatives to uh medication, for instance. And one of them he mentioned, of course, was physiotherapy. And uh, we're going to head to the front lines of chronic pain and the search for relief. Leading Edge Physiotherapy is in Alberta. Uh, and Grant Fedorak is president and physiotherapist at Leading Edge. And he joins me now. Grant, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. So tell me a bit about uh, just about some of the alternatives, because I think what's pointed out is that uh, oftentimes, you know, sort of this notion of a magic pill has, has probably obsessed us for quite a while now. But there are a lot of different ways to approach the search for relief for pain, and you must see a lot of them right on the front lines. We do. And, you know, I love to, you know, first of all, happy birthday. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank but, you. Yeah, I didn't mean to, I don't want it to dominate the conversation, but I appreciate it. Thanks. No, no, not at all. I think that, I mean, that's, that's actually one place to start. When we talk about chronic pain, we talk about a lot of times it's defined by a period of time, but I like to actually explain the different phases of pain that people go through so that they can understand exactly what it is when we're talking about chronic pain. Because most people just define it by if it lasts longer than, so for instance, three to six months is a, six months is a common period of time. But really, our body goes through these phases of, of pain, the first being basically what we call nociception. So your body in the, initially feels something and it responds in a very specific way through a stimulus through the nervous system. And it kind of activates this fight or flight response. And it's an, part of it is somewhat primitive. Then, then when we kind of beyond that, that's kind of that immediate kind of onset of pain. When we go beyond that, we actually cause some cell damage, tissue damage. We call that acute pain. And what's happening there is we've actually, our, our, our body is releasing certain chemicals, bradykinin, substance P, these chemicals that actually tell our brain and, and stimulate a healing process. And with acute pain, as those, as those kind of uh, chemicals go away, so does the pain and the healing process completes. And it's when that healing process is somewhat incomplete or there's ongoing pain we get into that third phase of chronic pain and that's the one that you're talking about you're describing that's those ones that go on and on and on and we talk about three different reasons for that chronic pain and one is ongoing nociception and 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 chronic and 
reoccurring inflammation. And that can occur from somebody who continuously injures themselves over and over and over again. And as long as they continue to do that and create that inflammatory process, they're going to continue to have pain for a long period of time. Another cause of chronic pain is somewhat we call uh, the psychological factors and somatization. So, so those are those people that are kind of have have other barriers to recovery that are occurring. And we get into this biopsychosocial model of kind of recovery for those, for a lot of our patients, actually, because we know that it's not just a biological response, that there's other parts of our body and, and our environment that are playing a role. And then the last one being, and one of the common things that we see in our practices when it comes to chronic pain is neuropathy. And this one's where I would love to spend a lot of the time today is talking about, and that's a com it's basically a conversation about what happens when the nerves aren't functioning well in our body, when they're creating a system where there's an ongoing um, shortening in tissue, an ongoing stimulus of the nerves over a long period of time, leading to a lot of pain. And when we talk about patients that are coming in to see us with numbness, tingling, uh, repetitive and chronic inflammatory problems, it often tracks back to what we talk about, which is neuropathy and the nerves just aren't well, they're not functioning properly. Right. Is that, is that a situation that where, whereby your body is continue, your nervous system is continuously telling you something is wrong, something is painful, or is that, is that, is That's that right. the first one? Is that the, yeah. Um, which, which, no, which, no, which as a matter of fact, yeah. it's that. Yeah. Um, that I mean, there that must be. I mean, you, you mentioned that a lot of people. That's what that's the condition a lot of people find themselves in with chronic pain. In fact, I think that's exactly what Lara Pingway, who we spoke to on Monday, wound up discovering about herself. Uh, how do, how do you approach that then? Because it feels like, in some senses, the body, the wiring is has, has gone off a little bit. To use a non medical term. That's right. And it's exactly right. And and often we can even track neuropathy back to many different causes. So there's changes in our body. So there's disease processes underlying that can cause neuropathy, things like deficiencies in certain minerals. There's um, diabetes can cause neuro neuropathy. So certain disease processes, but also some simple changes in our body lead to neuropathy, like degenerative changes in our spine, for instance, that can kind of start the signaling process from our peripheral nerves, those nerves that exit at each level and continuously are providing this signal and, and aren't actually getting the signal to the tissues and the tissues are overreacting as a result. So somebody with chronic low back pain is a good example. Particularly, we see this in patients who have peripheral neuro neuropathic chronic pain. And what's happening is essentially those nerves that exit from the spine aren't getting the signal that they normally would to the tissue and the tissue is overreacting and it's becoming hypersensitive. And essentially I like to describe it to people like if, if and, and patients will describe it as their muscles always constantly feel tight, they're in spasm, they're constantly contracting and they're having difficulty. And tracing back to your question, how are we dealing with it? We first have to look for what's going on and what are some of the root causes. And I kind of briefly touched on that biopsychosocial model where we're looking at biology. So what is happening when we assess a patient and go through a whole process to determine where is the source of this problem? Keeping in mind that there's a component after a period of time when pain has been around for a long period of time, you can imagine somebody who's been going through, they give up, they go through different phases of even including depression and different things that are affecting. So if we're not helping patients in that model, in that area, we're doing an incomplete job. 
And then the social environment, what environment are they in that might be contributing to the chronic problem that they've got, be it a work or something like sitting for long periods of time with somebody who's got a chronic back problem is obviously going to contribute to their, their problem going. So no matter what I do and the treatments that we provide, we're not going to be able to solve the problem without also addressing the problems in the environment. Inside of that, we have physio, like myself, we have access to all kinds of treatment. I know that uh, in the lead up to this conversation, I heard something kind of like a term like alternative. And I hope that people are thinking of the term alternative like another, not something yes. outside of the medical model. Because what we are doing is very inside of the medical model. It is addressing physical symptoms, but also these other realms that we can. And we have all kinds of treatments in that area and a lot of technology today. But one of the first ones we love to talk about is using your body to do the work. And it starts with movement and movement is so important for increasing the, and the natural opiates that our bodies produce like endorphins, uh, and these, these chemicals that our body can kind of produce that help with chronic pain. But you see people in, in pain and the, often the first thing they want to do is avoid movement. So a yeah. lot of what we're trying to do is introduce them, get them to a level of comfort that we can actually get them moving again. Uh, Grant, I guess one of the things I've always been curious about, too, is how can people around those living with chronic pain better support them? Because I understand that, of course, no one is more frustrated by their pain than those living with it. But oftentimes it impacts the rest of the people around them, whether it be colleagues, friends, family. And there must be ways that they can support them as well through what you some of the uh, some of the things you've just been mentioning. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a really important one. In fact, when we're working with patients, one of the first questions we ask is what support network do you have? Because it can play a huge role in their recovery or their management. In many cases, it ends up being management of the problem that they're dealing with. And the role that they can play is a, a psychological support network. So being there, just being able to listen to somebody to talk to, sometimes that's that's as important as anything. Uh, we know that the opportunity to share your, it's a life shared experience pain is, and being able to have that conversation can make a big difference. And certainly uh, there's more physical ways as well. So when we spend time with care, uh, with caregivers and loved ones, we like to spend time talking to them about the process and what we're doing and how they can carry it out. So for instance, uh, you know, with physiotherapy, there's so many different modalities that we have access to, be it acupuncture, IMS, manual therapy, massage therapy, um, exercise programs, exercises and stretching. And while we might not teach somebody how to do acupuncture or deep, you know, needling, dry needling, they certainly can carry out or help and play a role in some of the other activities. Like for instance, the stretching or some, it can be sometimes something as simple as motivating somebody to get up and go for a walk with them just to enjoy it or share some time in a pool. If it might be something we'll, we'll use aquatic therapy for patients in chronic pain because we know that they can exercise in an environment and get moving with less compression on their joints, for instance, or in an environment where they're buoyant and it takes some of the pressure off some of those painful areas. So any way that we can involve their um, social network is going to help in, in their recovery. No question about it. Right. And and, and I know just how frustrating, because I think every one of us knows is either themselves living with it or knows someone who is. Uh, and I, I wonder what you tell people living with, with chronic pain right now about, because I can imagine even the people you see, there mustn't be much light at the end of the tunnel sometimes, but you get the sense, impression that, if, that perhaps there is, right? Maybe there is. Yeah. And sometimes it starts with just acknowledging their pain. And you'd be surprised in the medical model today where somebody doesn't just say, I can hear and I can see that you're uncomfortable right now. 
and you're starting in the healing process and a, and a, a network of support just by saying that to somebody and acknowledging that what they're going through is uncomfortable. But dwelling on it doesn't help either. So giving somebody an avenue and giving them the power to take it back, to take back this control over their life can play can make, make such a difference in their lives as well. So that's where I see kind of physical therapists playing a huge role because we can offer them those avenues. We can provide them with some strategies, with things that they can do for themselves. We talked about, and I heard you introduce, you know, this opioid. That's something that something else has a control over. You take something and that is making the difference versus you doing something for yourself. And I really believe that our profession has that to offer. Right. Uh, because, of course, I think there is this idea that wouldn't it be nice if there was just something I could take that would make it all go away? And I think we all live – I mean, we take we just, you get a headache, you take a pill, right? I mean, I think people have this idea that maybe if there was just something I could take that it would make it all go away. But listening to you, obviously, this is a – that could be part of it, but this is a multifaceted thing. And, and it takes effort, unfortunately. And that, if you're living with chronic pain, can be a painful experience, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And a journey of a, you know, a thousand miles starts with one step. So acknowledging it and actually seeking help is the first step. And I certainly know that the the physicians that we deal with and in, in the profession, those in other areas as well, nurses and psychologists, they know that it's not just a one person job. It's a team that, to help these patients that are, have pain and are going through it. And there's many, many different source or solutions out there. Um, radiolog- radiologists play a big role with interventional medicine today. You know, um, certain types of injections can make a big difference. There's things like PRP, um, platelet, um, basically using your platelets to help kickstart a healing process again. Today's medicine offers so much to people with chronic pain. It's finding the right treatment for the right person at the right time. And that's, that's really important too. So just because something hasn't worked, doesn't mean that it won't work at another time at a different stage in the process as well. So I hope plays a big role. And I guess that's kind of what I love to tell people is that there's, there might be something don't give up. That's for sure. Grant, uh, thank you so much for your insight on this. It was fascinating to listen to. Absolutely. And uh, to any of those people that are going through it, just find the right person. And when you do, it can make a big difference in your lives. Brian Stelter has been following the media. Not only is he in the media, he's been following the media for years and years and years now. You may remember him from CNN's Reliable Sources. He's worked for the New York Times. Uh, He's now with Vanity Fair. He's also an author. He's written uh, a bunch of books. He's written a couple of books now, Hoax and his latest, which we'll be talking about with him uh, tonight. Now, keep this in mind, and this has just gone by so fast, but the next U.S. presidential election is now less than a year away can you imagine um it's it, it I, i'm still we're, i think i'm still we're still talking about the 2020 election aren't we uh, every indication at this point shows that it will be a rematch of the 2020 showdown between joe biden and donald trump now of course there are other things that are going on trump faces about i think 91 charges across four criminal cases 44 federal charges 47 state charges all of them felonies but it looks like he is still by far the front runner for the Republican nomination for the 2024 uh, presidency, um, or at least the candidate. Uh, Again, but the shadow of that election looms, the last one, looms very large over everything in America these days in some ways. Um, One of those charges against Trump is for subverting democracy, right? Uh, And also those charged in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in Washington, the riot, are still making their way through the court system. And according to Brian Stetler, to Brian, of course, there's another character 
in this story, at least one that uh, that he's been focusing on, as I mentioned, for years now, and that is Fox News. Now, uh, he's been covering Fox News for a long time, and you may remember that the relationship between Trump and Fox was a very, very close one. Uh, it helped him come to power. While he was in power, it sort of acted as as a voice piece for Trump, uh, at least according to Brian's book, uh, over and over many years. And then when the election was lost, when he lost in November of twenty of twenty twenty, that all of a sudden unleashed a very strange environment at Fox because they were one of the first they were the first network to call Arizona for Joe Biden, which essentially put him over the top. It, it was it wasn't how he won, but it was one of those that math became very difficult for Donald Trump if Arizona went to Joe Biden. And of course, Fox were the first one to call this. So this new book, new book that Brian Stelter has written, really looks behind the scenes at Fox uh, on that night in the lead up to the election, uh, the election itself and all that happened in the days after. And of course, this idea that Donald Trump started to quickly champion, had already for a while before the election itself, that somehow if he lost the election had been stolen, the so-called big lie, as it's called, that any state that voted for him, voting was fine. Anyone that didn't, it wasn't. Now, you can figure out the logic on that, but it was promoted to some extent, uh, obviously. I mean, it was promoted in many ways, uh, consciously so, by Fox News. This has all come out, by the way, in a lawsuit that was filed by um, Dominion Voting Systems, who you may remember. They filed a massive lawsuit against against Fox News, um, alleging, of course, that they had been defamed because it was alleged that their uh, or said that their voting machines had somehow contributed to voting fraud. So they went in and filed this lawsuit and there was a settlement at a court for about $787 million, but they filed all this disclosure, which included all these emails and documents that they had gotten from Fox, uh, and then they shared them. So people have been able, such as, uh, as Brian Stelter, have been able to dig through all those documents to get a real behind-the-scenes look at what was going on at the time at Fox. And afterwards, when January 6th unfolded, um, you know, even some of the people who were there mentioned Fox as their kind of their clarion call to be there. Here's an idea of what happened after the 6th, by the way. Tucker Carlson, who's, of course, famously no longer with the network, uh, talks about the 6th. And then U.S. Senator from Utah, the Republican Senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, reacts. Very little about January 6th was organized or violent. Surveillance video from inside the Capitol shows mostly peaceful chaos. Any effort by a news organization uh, to uh, to try and portray what happened here as anything other than a, a, a violent, disgusting attack on our nation's uh, uh, symbol of democracy is uh, is outrageous. Right. So uh, this book takes us really behind the scenes. Don't forget Rupert Murdoch, who runs Fox Corp, is is a, is what or did he's taken a step back of late. Is obviously a character that plays a big role in the book. Lachlan um, Lachlan Murdoch, who's now taken over his son, uh, also plays a big role. And it's really all about the position that Fox News occupies within American democracy. What happened over that period of time? What we know from all those documents that were released about what was going on behind the scenes, and of course. As we head into the next election in 2024, where it very much looks like it will be the same two adversaries, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, what to expect? So again, Brian Stelter is the former host of CNN's Reliable Sources, uh, and he's a special correspondent for Vanity Fair now. His book is called Network of Lies, the Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. Brian, thank you. Hi, great to talk with you. This, I mean, the details in this book um, are, 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 as someone who's worked in newsrooms and in news organizations before, I found some of it, it was almost through the looking glass. 
because you, it, it was just, but all this stuff that you built around the atmosphere within Fox itself on the opinion side, specifically in the after, just sort of in the lead up to the 2020 election and in the aftermath, just paints this picture of, of you know, something, something completely out of control. <laughs> was that the intention? Yes. And, and I'm, I'm glad that comes through. It, it's, it's incredible reading through all these emails from 2020 and 2021 and, and realizing there were no guardrails. There were no adults in the room. There were no responsible people. You know, Fox was quite literally making it up as they went along. What was the, the symbiotic relationship between the network and Donald Trump? You know, it's a very twisted relationship because in many ways it's mutually beneficial. Both sides need each other. They share the same audience, the same voting base. You know, uh, at the same time, you know, Fox is oftentimes uh, frustrated with Trump. Trump very frequently criticizing Fox, especially in his post-presidential years. But but even when he was you know in the White House, he I, I would say, first of all, he couldn't have been elected without Fox. And then once he was in the White House, he was often misinformed by Fox. You know, those are just some of the layers of the relationship. But I think at the end of the day, no matter how much, you know, Trump might complain about Rupert Murdoch, no matter how much Fox might seem to pull away from Trump sometimes and and give other candidates attention, at the end of the day, they are still locked together because they're both anti-Democrat. And in the United States, you know, they, they both want Democrats to lose. They want Republicans to win. So if Trump is the nominee, uh, Fox will be in line with him, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff, the details you go through, I guess a lot of this was involved in the Dominion lawsuit. Uh, a lot of what they had in terms of uh, in terms of evidence was, was put out, obviously, in terms. But the things that you've uncovered there, it, it, to me, what was really fascinating was first election night and the Arizona call. That was, to me, was remarkable. And then the panic that ensues, the panic that ensues within the newsroom as all of a sudden their own viewers uh, turn on them, turn on them for, for essentially telling them the truth about an election outcome. Exactly. And that's really the story. That's really what the story is about. It's about the audience. It's about supply versus demand. And, you know, Fox is the supply, but we need to study and scrutinize the demand. The audience is, in this case, in 2020, and, and it's still true today, demanding to be lied to, demanding to be told that Trump won an election that he lost, demanding to be told that it was stolen from him, demanding to be told there was widespread voter fraud when there wasn't. Uh, that, unfortunately, is the root uh, issue here. That's the root problem. It's the it's the root dynamic that is uh, poisoning American politics. When you go through the e- the emails and the text messages and all the and all that stuff, what was really going on behind the scenes with the names that we know well, the Sean Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's and so on? What was their yeah. take on what was the what was the difference between what they thought privately and what they were saying publicly? <laughs> it, you know what. what for every host, it's a little bit different. You know, for every host, it's nuanced. But Tucker Carlson, you know, very clearly uh, rejected the voter fraud lies, the claims about Dominion rigging machines. He rejected that from the get-go. He was worried that the viewers believed it because he knew it was bogus. And yet he needed to be lie curious. He felt a need to appeal to the audience by winking and nodding and implying that maybe there was fraud, you know, and and that's that's the story with a lot of these figures is this attempt to act as if there's something there when there's really not. Uh, you know, the other hosts like Maria Bartiromo, formerly a really accomplished business journalist who, um, you know, seemed to actually believe it. She seemed to actually believe that the election was stolen from Trump. So what she was saying on the air maybe matched what she really thought. But clearly others like Sean Hannity um, 
You know, I, I'll give you a, a great example about Hannity. Hannity, in the days before January 6th, before the attack, he was very worried about what might happen on January 6th. And he was texting the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, saying, I'm worried about the next 48 hours. But Hannity never said that on the air. He never expressed his wor worries on the air. And that, to me, is, is a, one of the, the most startling examples of this di di difference, this dynamic of saying one thing on the air and saying something else off the air. If you're worried that there could be violence on January 6th, but you don't say so in advance on the air, if you don't try to calm things down, I think that's a real betrayal of your job, of your duty as a uh, uh, as a broadcaster. Even though Andy's not a journalist, he's still a broadcaster. Yeah, I mean, and he's seen in that role to say he's seen as a deliverer of fact to some extent, even though, as you point out in the court case, uh, that was exactly what they argued against in Tucker Carlson's case. Where do the Murdochs stand in all this? Because obviously Rupert Murdoch is a longtime newspaper guy. Uh, what do they make of this sort of twisting of the truth that becomes common on Fox? I think Rupert Murdoch, you know, People think of this man as a swashbuckling media mogul, you know, this larger than life figure re reviled by some, revered by others. You know, they they claim that he has all this power and that he's using his outlets, you know, to, to say what he thinks. And there's some truth to that. I mean, yes, he looks at the editorials and some of his papers before they're published. But when it comes to Fox, he actually did not seem to exercise much power or influence. And I would argue that's to the detriment of the United States. Uh you know, media owners should not intervene, should not meddle with real reporting, but they should intervene when lies are being spread on their outlets. And instead of intervening, instead of stepping in, instead of squashing this stuff at the get-go, Rupert Murdoch, who, who knew that voter fraud lies were lies, who knew Trump lost an election he claimed to win, Rupert Murdoch sat back and, and let it happen on his air. And that, to me, is one of the big, you know, revelations in this book. And and re reading his emails and seeing, you know, seeing what ha what happened to this man, I think that fundamentally, he's a diminished figure. He's he's not that, um, you know, dragon slaying giant that, that he was. He actually was and was portrayed to be decades ago. Yeah, I think you put it well. It, it, they didn't cause January sixth, but it doesn't happen without them. It doesn't happen without Fox because Fox fosters an environment where there is a story for Trump voters to buy a, a story that says Trump was cheated. You, the voters were cheated and we need to hold them accountable. Uh, and in that environment, when you're told that over and over and over again, and you're told to, uh, that companies like Dominion are the villains and that you are the victims, you can understand a little bit why some people might've bought plane tickets and flown across the country to Washington for a rally. So of course, Brian, if you're sitting on the Canadian side of the border, you're kind of looking south thinking, wait a second, Donald Trump is it doesn't look like anyone's going to be able to dethrone him from the Republican nomination, barring some something. Um, so here we go again. Where does where does the Fox environment and Trump sit now? And what should we be watching out for? <laughs> what should we be watching out for? I, it's, it's the key question. I mean, looking into 2024, there is this tug of war in the U.S. between democracy and autocracy. And, and we know that Trump is, is tugging in an autocratic direction. Some of his aides have made that abundantly clear that they, they want to, um, you know, extract what they call retribution. Um, now, in that environment, uh, news media has to be incredibly strong to call it what it is, to be louder than the liars. Uh, but, but no matter what the news media does, there's still going to be this network of lies, this Fox environment, this, you know, right wing media machine that supports Trump. And uh, so, so that I think 
you know, it's, it's fundamental to understanding what's what's broken about American politics. It's that the information environment is broken and that there's a propaganda machine that serves to prop up Trump no matter his desires. So I would say, what do we look for? We look for whether Lachlan Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch uh, have a backbone, whether they show leadership or just are content to be passengers, whether the news gets thrown Fox, whether the truth gets thrown Fox or it's subsumed by all the noise. I think, you know, those are those are definitely going to be some of the questions next year. Right. And, and what is the relationship like now? Because, of course, I mean, I see see his posts on Truth Social and so on. Uh, Trump was never is never happy unless it's it's fealty, 100 percent fealty. But what's his what's his relationship with Fox now? Is it is is it as it was uh, in those late days before the 2020 election? He you know, Trump is never satisfied. He, there's nothing nothing is ever enough for him. So, you know, he he complains about Fox. He rants about Fox on his social network. He complains about Rupert Murdoch. But he also goes on the network and gives interviews whenever whenever he has a chance. So, you know, he, he knows he knows that Fox has a near monopoly on the right in the United States. He knows he needs to be on Fox. He knows Fox is important. At the same time, he does try to go around the network and, you know, he does try to prop up True Social. But let's remember, True Social is a small money losing social network. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Trump is going to need and does need his allies like Sean Hannity on Fox. Well, one of the things that, I, of course, I was fascinated by in your book because it was a fascinating development is the departure or, or the firing of Tucker Carlson, because it all seemed to happen. Yeah. It, it seemed to catch everybody off by surprise, including Tucker Carlson. Oh, he was he was shocked. Uh, he did not see this coming. And, and you can see that in the email I quote in the book where he's he's uh, reacting to the staff saying he doesn't know what's going to happen or what's about to, what's happening next. Tucker Carlson, though, you know, he should have seen this coming because he um, he was skating on very thin ice for a very long time. He had given Fox executives more than enough reasons to oust him. Uh, but he fostered an image of being untouchable. I think this is really interesting and, and frankly, kind of savvy on his part. He had been fired from two other cable news jobs before, CNN and MSNBC. Here he was at the last big American cable news network, Fox News. He created this image, and he, he literally did this sometimes, you know, uh, by, by telling people he was cozy with the CEO, Lachlan Murdoch. He was friends with the boss. He made it seem like he was untouchable. He made it seem like he was invincible when, in fact, he was anything but, when, in fact, he was anything but. So I think he, he created an image of untouchability when, in fact, he was vulnerable the whole time. Yeah. And he seemed to change. I mean, I, I vaguely remember him from the Crossfire days. And uh, and I've certainly seen the John Stewart video over the years. But he changed. It, it struck <laughs> me that he became a different person. At least he expressed very different beliefs and thoughts. He did. And and I've been I've known him almost 20 years. He's always been a libertarian. He's always been a contrarian. He's always been a provocateur. Um, but, you know, there were times at Crossfire where the show decided not to do segments about abortion and reproductive rights because Tucker back then told his staff, told his friends that he was pro-choice. Again, that's his libertarian values, that he didn't think the government should be telling a woman what to do. Now, nowadays, not only does he describe himself as ardently pro-life and anti-abortion, he um, he also lies about the Democrat position, the liberal position on that matter. So, you know, he, he's evolved in some ways ideologically, but I think more compellingly, more importantly, he's become much more of a, a down-the-rabbit-hole conspiracy theorist, uh, believing the worst about his opponents, believing that the country, that the United States is is doomed. The way he described the, the United States and, and, frankly, the world around um, was was of, you know, just of a dark, apocalyptic quality. And yeah, that's not the guy that I knew 20 years ago. 
He's scheduled to speak at a luncheon with the premier of Alberta in, in January, uh, which he, which of course she's come under some fire for. But what is he now? What is what? I mean, I watch see him on X, I guess now and then. But uh, is, is he as as he changed gears at all since he left the network? I think if anything, his his heart has darkened even more. He's he's on yeah. a, a you know a, a far right tour of the world. You know, um, he's he's off meeting with you know uh, world leaders who who he believes are uh, compatible with his vision. Um, he. Uh, and and he is trying to launch a new media company. You know, he's been posting on on X, site formerly known as as Twitter. He's making videos. He's out there trying to start something. But he he doesn't have nearly as big an audience as he had on Fox. Uh, you know, yes, traditional television is in decline. Yes, there are new ways to consume information. Yes, there are new platforms. But still, for news consumers or political junkies. Television, old-fashioned cable TV in the U.S. is still the main way to go. So he's going to have a hard time as he tries to rebuild his audience. Canada doesn't often make its way onto Fox News every once in a while when they want to beat up on somebody. Uh, but uh-huh. staring from staring from across the border, um, what should we make of this? What do you think we should know about this story? How does how does it impact Canadians? I mean, clearly we're we're right beside you, and we feel what you feel most of the time. Um, <laughs> yes, I, you know, gosh, if I, if I, if my reaction to what you said is better not to be in Fox's uh, mentions, better not to ever be mentioned by Fox right now, better because it's a distortion machine. It really is. Um, yes, there are some real journalists there. Yes. Some people there do good work, but for the most part, it is so, uh, agenda oriented and frankly, it's, you know, rage oriented, uh, the network is programmed, designed to make people angry, to make people mad, make people scared. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of viewers see through it, and I hope over time we can teach more people to see through that. Well, Brian, uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Crap. His computer is password protected. Um, Try such heat this day. Nope. How about this fish is cold? I want a refund. Nope. But I lost the receipt. Bingo. There you have it. <laughs> I've never heard that password before. Family Guy. Always uh, always something in Family Guy. Uh, Brian and Stewie there, of course. Well, like clockwork every year, we are reminded that the passwords most of us use, not all of us, but many of us use, to protect just about everything we do online, from banking to email to work to Netflix, are woefully weak And once again this year, NordPass, the password management tool from the team behind NordVPN, have partnered with independent researchers to release the study of the 200 most common passwords used in 2023. And they find that of the world's 20 most common passwords, 17 of them can be cracked in less than a second. Think about that. 17 of the top 20 can be cracked in less than a second. So perhaps it's time to not use one, two, three, four, five, six, or a new one that's in the top 10, as far as I can tell, admin. These are ones, I mean, listen, I know a lot of us out there use passwords on things that we don't take that seriously, right? Perhaps you use a far more, um, a far better password, let's put it that way, for something like your banking than you do for your Netflix. But maybe it's good just to get into the habit of using good passwords, because of course, the consequences of people breaking in and being able to hack those passwords can be very far reaching. Uh, Joining me now is Thomas Malakis. He's Chief Technical Officer at NordPass. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me here. This is always an interesting list that you put out, mainly because it doesn't change much. I mean, year after year after year, we use the same bad passwords. Why is that? 
Uh, I believe uh, people are uh, following their habits. Uh, and uh, if we if we look at the passwords and uh, if we look at our digital lives, uh, so we see that uh, more and more services applications are there on the internet. So it is very hard for for people and for me also uh, to remember uh, 10, 20, 50, 100, 100, 200 passwords uh, which to be used uh, on those services. That's why people select uh, easy to remember passwords or in some cases uh, people are creating strong passwords but then we get to another point where they are reusing those passwords so meaning that if i will crack one password i can i can take your 10 20 or 100 accounts right of course there's nothing more frustrating than when you forget your password you have to go back in and log over <laughs> log in again i mean people will try to avoid that uh, obviously uh, as they try to avoid it like the plague because they wouldn't be using such easy ones if not uh, so uh, just to look at some of the uh, some of the most popular ones once again this year i gather the the obvious 123456 is another is 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 the reigning champion yet again and then a new <laughs> one admin has made its way into the top 200 into the top five right off the bat. So what do these ones have in common, these bad passwords we all seem to use so often? Uh, so one, two, three, four, five, six is, uh, yeah, is a champion of the passwords uh, year and year again. So we see that. Uh, another part is admin. So this is, this is where we see uh, the common passwords on the devices. So for example, uh, you buy... Uh, CCTV cameras, right, where you want to protect your home and uh, you want to have it, but uh, you need to log into the system. Uh, just, uh, for example, you are away out of your home and you want to see what is happening, uh, what is happening here, uh, there. So you just log into your uh, cameras. But unfortunately, the passwords, uh, which you use to log in, they are also default. So that's where we see that people, uh, when they set up uh, the IoT devices or other devices uh, which has access to the internet, they forget to change their default passwords. And that's where we see a growing uh, admin password and it's uh, in second place after the ones you click on high. Yeah, that was that was a surprise because I gather it hadn't been around before. Now, tell me, somebody, Thomas, from your perspective, I mean, I think a lot of us treat passwords for different things, and I don't want to talk about myself in case I get myself into trouble. But many people treat passwords for different things differently. So you'll use stronger passwords for things that involve financial things, for instance, pa uh, banking and such, but weaker passwords for things like Netflix, for instance, because you don't want to be bothered with having to, to log into it again and again and again. I guess that, that in of itself is a bit of an issue. You should always be disciplined about how strong your passwords are. Yes. Uh, well, and uh, we also see the trend on, the, for example, Netflix is a uh, weaker password, uh, but that was uh, before. Now we see that uh, increasing. Uh, and I believe there are a few reasons for that. So, for example, when you have your uh, smart TV uh, in your living room, right, and you need to log in, it is very hard with a TV or with a remote control to enter those strong passwords. But mm -hmm. we also see we also see the help from the companies like such as Netflix, where they allow you to log in using your mobile device. So you just uh, scan the QR code, for example, uh, on your TV. And you just need to log in on your on your mobile device, and you are there. So that's that's a very reassuring trend uh, where 
not only uh, we uh, in the cybersecurity understand the, uh, the need to use strong passwords, but also we have support for from third parties such as Netflix and uh, other companies uh, which uh, have uh, these streaming services or others. Uh, and they provide alternative login methods. So you don't need to kind of play around for half an hour right. entering the password with your remote. I'm a big fan of the face ID. Of course, the only problem is when it doesn't work and you forget your password, then you have to go through that whole thing again. Tell me a bit about the 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 consequences of being hacked, because I think oftentimes people think of the sort of the personal consequences of people having access to your to your information. But but it, it's a world of hurt out there if people figure out what your password, even what one of your passwords is or can be. Yes, uh, and uh, it's it's one one common mistake which I see time and uh, time over and over again is that people think that I'm not interested for the hackers. I don't have anything to be stolen. I'm just a single person, and uh, I'm not kind of uh, famous, or I don't have any kind of internet possessions or something. So, uh, and that's that's one of the biggest mistakes because uh, there is no more. We're we're not living in a time where uh, one hacker with a hoodie, which we see in the movies, is sitting in behind the desk and uh, trying to steal your credentials. No, it's a now it's an automated. Everything is automated. So there are scripts and there are uh, machines, automated machines uh, from the cloud. They are just uh, uh, trying to breach IP address and uh, they're trying to use most common passwords uh, on the IP. So with, with all due respect, we are just the IPs uh, on, the, on the web, which, uh, which is being trying to breach. And they, yeah, and the, Strong don't passwords. take it personally, in other yes. words. Don't take it personally. It's <laughs> just a number. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it's just a number. And uh, and the 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 kind of the change, uh, not the change, but uh, when you have physical possessions, right? It's uh, it's understandable and uh, it's very easy to see uh, once it's stolen. It's no longer there. But with the digital data, it's uh, you will not you will you will not able you will not be able to see that. Uh, that it's stolen because it, it will be just simply copied. It will be still there. Uh, you'll be able to access it, and uh, but it will be also used for others. And right. uh, another part which uh, which I told uh, in the beginning uh, is that uh, once one of your passwords is is cracked, uh, what uh, what is the common uh, use of of the hackers or the bad actors? They will try to login with the same correct password to other services and uh, most of the time or majority of the time they will be successful because people tend to reuse the same the same passwords for different systems so meaning if you lose one password most probably you will lose not only access to for example gmail or uh, or, other, or other services facebook or something but most probably the hacker will be able with the help of social engineering or just a most common uh, streaming services or social networks, they'll be able to try and log in there and uh, have the access to that. And you were mentioning this is automated now. This isn't one person sort of typing in password after password after password. This is done much faster than we can imagine these days. Yes, of course. And uh, with, a, with the rise of cloud computing, uh, so basically it's uh, unlimited uh, compute power. So meaning, I can start brute forcing your attack with your password. Uh, I can just uh, run the script and I can go to to the uh, to the other topic. 
and that brute force attack will be running uh, in the background and uh, will it will try many different databases which are available on the dark web and uh, will, it will be trying different passwords but uh, what's what's more concerning also once you once you once that password gets cracked and uh, passwords like one two three four five six it's they are cracked in less than a second so uh, it is called also lateral movement so or social engineering so once i will have access to your social network for example i can i can proceed with the social engineering attack and i can use that social network to contact for example your family and yeah. for i and and uh, i can try to get your financial uh passwords to access to your bank account for example i can once i have access to facebook i can write to one of one your spouse uh Oh, uh, oh dear! I forgot my password to my bank account. Or can you do, can you remind me your social number or or any others like that? And it will be, uh, it will be message from you. So what can go wrong? So I'll just uh, reply with uh, with all the passwords and numbers. And that's where I can get into your financial services, into your social right. security. Into oh, it's a scary parts. world out there, Thomas. It's a scary world, Thomas. Let me know. I mean, tell me there are some ways. I mean. People are lazy, right? So therein lies a part of the problem here. But what is what is your rule of thumb for creating a decent password? How long should it be? How complicated should it be? Uh, well, yes. So it's as as long as possible. Uh, so you shouldn't be uh, remembering the password. Uh, so the password must contain one, uh, at least one special character, such as uh, at uh, or hashtag or dollar sign or uh, at least one number, uh, at least one capital uh, character. Uh, it should be at least 20 characters long. And uh, what's another thing uh, I see, uh, and it's a common mistake when you're creating a password, you use a word, for example, password, and you just change the character. So you use add symbol instead of letter A, uh, you right. add number, at, you add number at the end, uh, and you add, for example, exclamation point also at the end. So this is kind of strong password based on the rules, but uh, you shouldn't be using this kind of dictionary uh, words just replacing the character because it's also a common thing for the tools to crack those passwords because uh, people are no longer guessing. We have uh, automated tools uh, to run that and we can just introduce the rules where you just add special character at the end and uh, the same brute force runs. So instead of one second, it will right. be cracked in one hour. Oh. And, and again, you're not supposed to use the obviously not supposed to use the same password for more than one site, needless to say. Yes, yes. Uh, that's, uh, that's of course the, the truth. And uh, in order to stay safe, and again, that's that's not a commercial or something, right? Uh, you can use any password manager, but it, even even NordPass can give it give it for free. It can, it can generate, it can store your passwords uh, for free of charge. But uh, yes, so my my advice is to use the password managers. Uh, so use the tools uh, which are safe, which are end to end encrypted and store your passwords there and remember just one password which will unlock your tool instead of storing them in in, in your head you, you can use your brain for much better purpose rather than yeah my, my brain uh, doesn't remember all my 
my brain doesn't remember all my passwords these days. For someone in your shoes, it must shock you that year in, year out, so many people don't pay any attention to this advice when it, it really unlocks almost everything we do. I mean, we, we pay more attention to locking our front doors than we do with to our passwords. Yes, yes, of course. And uh, we see that time and time again. And uh, me personally, I compare it, it's like medicine, right? So uh, you you don't drink, uh, many people also don't drink vitamins and they uh, kind of look into this. Once they get sick, then they start thinking, oh, I should have uh, drink vitamins, I should have drink tea or something like that. But it's, it's only after you get uh, hacked or after you get sick. So we should be more proactive and that's one of our purposes to educate people to tell them to show them that uh, simple passwords uh, they are easy, easily crackable and uh, the consequences of that might be very big not only financial but also uh, also for, from the brand perspective and, and others indeed I, I, do you feel like you're getting anywhere are people listening um Yes, I would. I would say yes. Uh, I would say uh, that uh, the amount of people who are starting to at least to listen uh, to us, that we are not trying to sell something, but we are trying to educate people. I would say we are getting there. But also, uh, it's it's not only about just uh, talking a year over and over again. It's also about helping them by introducing something more convenient. Uh, right. not only like uh, the tool which saves your passwords, but also from the user experience and the security standpoint. So that's that's where the uh, pass keys uh, are coming into play. And that might be some right. new term for, for the users. Again, well, Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Christmas tree lot so people wouldn't have to drive all the way out to nowhere and waste a whole Saturday. They invented them, Russ, because people forgot how to have a fun, old-fashioned family Christmas and are satisfied with scrawny, dead, overpriced trees that have no special <sighs> meaning. My toes are numb. You see, kids, this is what our forefathers did. I can't feel my leg. They walked out into the woods, they picked out that special tree, and they cut it down with their bare hands. Mom, I can't feel my hips. Clark. Yes, honey. Audrey's frozen from the waist down. Uh, that's all part of the experience, honey. Christmas vacation. Uh, too early? Well, it's a month and two days off, right? Christmas vacation, one of my favorites. One of the ones that we watched every year in our house. It was the last great movie that my grandma, rest her soul, absolutely adored. It was the last one she picked up on and said, we need to watch that one every year on Christmas. So, of course, we did. Uh, Christmas vacation. When we were together, of course. Um it's that time of year, right? It's time to think about um, decorations and all that stuff. I was noticing that over the last week or so, the trees started going up in and around where I am. The city is putting up the lights, which is always nice because it's dark. And uh, having the lights up is always a really nice thing at this time of year. It adds a little joy to what can be a pretty bleak time of year. Um, and I was wondering what was going on this year with real Christmas trees. Now, I should preface this by saying that I'm one of those many in this country that now lives in a unit where we're not allowed to have real Christmas trees. So I just admire other people's real Christmas trees these days. I'll even stop, you know, sometimes if you see the ones that are the ones that are decorated, well, they're not Christmas trees per se, but you know what I mean? When you walk past a lot, I'll kind of lean in and have a sniff because I love this 
love the smell of Christmas trees. I hope that doesn't sound too weird. Uh, but I was wondering, it's been kind of a rough year this year with the wildfires and all the different kinds of environmental things, you know, different weather events that we've had, flooding, wildfires, and so on. Plus, there's been inflation, right, which impacts everybody right along the supply chain, as we well know. So I was really curious, what's going on? With Christmas trees this year, are they going to be more expensive? Are they going to be smaller? Are they going to be taller? Is there enough out there? Uh, so I thought I'd check in with Shirley Brennan, who's executive director of the Canadian Christmas Tree Association. This is indeed their favorite time of the year. Shirley, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ben. Well, this is, uh, I mean, needless to say, many different or- kinds of organizations have a busy time of year, but this <laughs> this goes without saying is the time of year for your membership. It is the best time of the year. Um, and, and yeah, we uh, we love how our last harvest of the season for any commodity is tied to a special occasion such as Christmas. No doubt. Now, obviously, I think a lot of people looking at the kind of year it's been with extreme weather and fires and floods and so on. What kind of impact has that had on Christmas tree growth this year? So the good news is with all the forest fires in, um, well, it doesn't matter whether it's in the West Coast or whether it's in the East because we've we've seen them everywhere. No Christmas tree farms were impacted where they lost their trees due to forest fires. So that's the good news. Right. Is there is there bad news? There is some news that or is less concerning. good news. I should say yes, less good less news. Good news. <laughs> less good news. So and and it comes down to our seedlings um, and our smaller trees that you know are going to impact um, future years. That we know that the extreme dryness and the extreme heat impacted some of um, the farms that way. So right. down the road, you know, trees may not uh, grow as quickly because they their growth was stunted and it's going to take a little bit of extra a few years to get them at marketable trees and the the worst case is some of the seedlings were lost so we know that going into it um and that is imperative to keep those those farms moving so um that's kind of where our challenge is going to be in the next couple of years right how long does it take for uh, for it to go from seedling to lot for a, for a Christmas tree. So it goes anywhere between 10 and 14 years. So, yeah. And 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 the reason there's such a an age or a year's gap in there, those four years, is because we depend on weather, right? So if it is not prime where we get enough rain, but not too much rain and we get heat and not too much heat, um, then trees will grow at a steady rate. But when we don't get that and we get the extremes that we're seeing, it takes a little bit longer to grow trees. Um, right. So that's what we're seeing. And farmers must have to plan that plan that long-term view into their year-to-year operations as well, as they think that four years, five years from now, they're not going to have the same abundance. They need to factor that into this year, right? Yeah. And, and so that's a good point, too, because when we... You know, let's say I had a thousand trees to sell and I've planted this acre and there's a thousand trees in there, but they grow at different rates. Well, now I only have 750 to sell, but next year or the year after, I'm going to have maybe more trees than the thousand because those other ones are going to grow. So, yeah, it is um, sometimes it's a a guessing game, um, but but most farmers factor in those kind of um, figures and into the data so they know how many trees they have to sell. 
We know inflation is coming down bit by bit, but I gather in terms of inputs, uh, it's still been, they've been higher. I know that last year prices were up about 10%. I guess this year we're going to see another bit of a jump as well in terms of just your average price, right? Yeah, so we are going to see, um, the farms have, have told me, you know, around a 5% increase. And and so one of the things that I've been stressing is um, farmers only have control of the price of a tree um, at their farm. So once it goes to a retailer, those prices are no longer in the control of the farmer. So um, just being aware of when I say that it's a 5% increase, and and if somebody goes somewhere and sees a 10% or what have you, um, once it leaves the farmer's hands or the farm, it 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 kind of takes on a role of its own sometimes. Right. I mean, thinking back to even my childhood, and even not that long ago, uh, the Christmas tree market seems very kind of, I wouldn't call it haphazard, but we used to buy one from a lot. I mean, it, it's, it's much less, it's much more informal or feels like it than say going, I know they sell them everywhere now, but it feels much less informal, much less formal in some ways than some other things that you're going to buy over the course of a year. Yes. And you know what? Buying a Christmas tree is very personal. So you mentioned going to a lot. There's lots of people that go to charitable um, organizations that have lots. People will set up retail lots um, on, on, you know, in various communities. And then we have going to the farm and choosing it. And everybody's opinion and personal experience um, is individual. So as as individual as our trees are, um, people's personal experiences are as well. Right. I guess. I guess there is other factors that that work into that final cost that you get as as the, as the consumer. Because if it's a five percent increase on the farm, then there's transportation and labor, and uh, you know, all along the supply chain, like everything else. Yes, and 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 that's what I say to people. You know, unfortunately, um, in agriculture, the consumer uh, does feel the effects just like when the farmer feels the expect the expense of. Um, the cost of growing or running a farm goes up. Um, But I can tell you that the increases we're seeing are solely because of the costs costs that have increased for growing that Christmas tree at a tree farm. So, um, you know, we are, like you said, inflation is slowly coming down. Um, So hopefully we're not going to see the 50% uh, increase in uh, fees for stuff that we need to run our farms, such as fertilizer. Right. Which you have seen, I gather the price of all of that stuff has climbed a lot of late. Yeah. So about a year ago, I, I think it was um, 2021, late part of 2021, we got word that fertilizer was going up by 50%. So that is huge. But even fuel, the cost of fuel, depending on where that tree is coming from, uh, that transportation and the fuel, we know that fuel costs across Canada, there's no one f- set fuel charge. So just having that incorporated, but I mean, sh- insurance has gone up. Um, just having that impact of what I do on my farm um, is is adding to that as well. Right. I, I noticed, though, that there are there are more varieties now. I mean, back when I was young, back to that lot when I was young, um, it was a pretty standard tree that you could buy. Now there seems to be a lot of variety as well. I guess that reflects how farmers are trying to adapt to changing changing um, circumstances on the ground as well as to the higher expenses. 
Yeah, so we are looking, and you're right. Years ago, it used to be a spruce or a pine, a yeah. short needle or a long yeah, needle. Yeah, you can have right? any, kind of, any kind of car you want as long as it's black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, yeah, we are we're listening to consumers. So we know that there are still consumers that like the spruce and the pine trees. Uh, but we also know that more demand is for the needles that re- the, the trees that retain their needles. So those are the fir trees and there's different species of fir trees because not every farm can grow um, a Fraser fir. A Fraser fir is one of the most difficult trees to grow and it really depends on the type of soil. So, but somebody may be able to grow a balsam fir or a Canaan fir as opposed to growing a uh, Fraser fir. So we're listening to the consumers. We're also listening to the consumers when it comes to trimming them as well. So we know that the housing market are um, more compact. They're not the great big sprawling parlors that we might have had years ago. And so trimming and pruning our trees to... Uh, conform to what the consumer wants is important as well. And that's why we have mini trees and we have skinny trees and we have big and tall. Um, So we really are working with the consumer. And that's why when you go to a lot in a different province, whether it's Ontario or right through to, to British Columbia, you'll find different types of trees because that's what the consumers in that demographic is asking for. This may just be my imagination, but it seems like they're a lot more uniformly nice. I mean, I remember as a kid, the Charlie Brown tree was an exception, but it existed. You could find one if you looked hard. You don't <laughs> see a lot of the kind of scraggly, scrawny ones anymore. You know, and unfortunately, uh, people will say, oh, you're going to take a Charlie Brown tree. And I always say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So that fun Charlie Brown tree that you had to, you know, hang something really obscure to hide it or what have you. Oh, yeah. Um, or you, face know. A, it, you always have to face a certain side against the wall. Right? Exactly. Was, exactly. Yeah. Well, but here's the thing, Ben. You never put a tree in the middle of the room so we all walk around it, right? True. So it doesn't have to be perfect, but consumers want that uniform tree. So that's what we're giving them. But I do have farms that are natural where you come and, you know, they may prune the odd branch or what have you but you're taking a an unpruned tree home and and they are very open about that so it's like if you want the natural looking tree come to us if you want something that is more uniform than really sculptured here i'll give you a list of farms in the community that you can go to Right. I, I gather there's some challenges like everything in agriculture these days. The, the Christmas tree industry is facing some challenges, too, with reti- people retiring out, and there are just fewer people growing them these days. Yeah. So we are seeing um, the average Christmas tree farmer in Canada is about 70 years old. So we are seeing the retirement creeping up there and, God forbid, um, death. And they're, le- they're leaving the industry without a succession plan. So when they retire, they may still live on their farm, but they're not selling trees anymore. So we've lost about 20,000 acres of Christmas trees over the last 10 years due to that. Um, so the the challenge is, and, and we are not the only ones in agriculture dealing with this. The challenge is how do we get the young people to come into the industry um, and and embrace agriculture. Right. And you mentioned that because it's a 10 year or 14 year window, you kind of need to you need to sweeten the pot a little bit for young farmers to want to get involved because the, the wait for that first crop, so to speak, is long. 
Yes, because if you and I had to wait 10 years for our first paycheck, we probably wouldn't be in our, our jobs. Um, and so just finding it. And what we're finding is the younger generation that are coming into it. They want uh, agritourism. So they want to bring in people to their farm more than once a year. So what can I do while my trees are growing, whether it be the farms in the prairie provinces that have uh, crops, cash crops, whether it be people in Ontario that are selling pumpkins and and um, lavender and that sort of thing. So that agritourism is really attracting the younger generation. And I think that's where you're going to see our industry go. This is a, a, a pertinent question always. When should you buy a Christmas tree? Because th- this feels a little bit early, but I've seen people buying. I mean, I've seen people with them already, not the natural ones, perhaps. But, you know, people are putting up their Christmas stuff earlier and earlier, I find. Uh, but having a having a tree can, can be a bit of a it can be a bit of a tricky situation if you buy it too early. It, it can if it's not taken care of. So I know that people are getting. Uh, Christmas trees. Now we have several tree farms that opened last weekend uh, for tree sales. Those are the people that are getting the fir trees, right? You're not going to get a um, a spruce or a pine this early because the fir tree does retain their needles. Regardless of when you get it, it needs to be taken care of. So if you're getting it you know, the 18th of November, it's going in water and you're watering it every day and you're going to take care of it and it will last to the new year. The key is to make that fresh cut when you bring it home and put it in water so that it drinks. Shirley, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben.